0: Well good morning. morning. Everybody have a good week? Okay, good, good. I did too. I was busy. Thanks for asking. I'm really excited uh, to uh, be able to be preaching uh, today, particularly this passage, uh, because last week uh, was Easter, obviously, and and Joe preached um, just a wonderful message on the gospel. And today, I get the privilege of preaching the people's response uh, to, to that sermon, the first sermon ever preached to the church, and I get to uh, talk about the people's response. So I'm really excited about it. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, bow with me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, uh, we just ask for your spirit to, to lead us from your word today. God, would you open up our eyes and our hearts to what you have to say? Help us to look at the example of some of the first believers and be able to evaluate our own lives as we read about them. Help us learn how to apply your word. Conform us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, today. And we thank you for him and his sacrifice, it's in his name. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, Amen. Well, uh, there's a family that uh, that Katri and I know, and, and their story is kind of interesting. Uh, they they had three boys, and these boys were uh, rather uh, you would call them rambunctious. Uh, they could be heard all throughout the church. Uh, everyone knew when this family showed up and uh, they're a good family they're raising their kids up right in the Lord everything's going well and, and they go uh, mom and dad decides I think I want to try for the daughter we've got three boys that are kind of crazy I think we want to try for the girl bless their heart they decided to do that and uh, God blessed them a lot because they had twins, twin boys, and uh, it wasn't like making a basketball team, no, for this family, it felt like a rugby team, or a football team, they were rough, they were loud, they, um, kind of crazy, they ended up having another, another kid who was a girl, so that's good, you know, but um, having kids is exciting times, isn't it? You know, uh, that's what we'll say, it's exciting times. I think, uh, I think all parents could say that. I, I look back at uh, when Katrina had our first uh, Caleb, and you know, we read all the books, and we uh, thought we knew what we were doing, but you don't. You don't actually know what you're doing. <laughs> and uh, no matter how prepared you are, you're not prepared. Because well, kids are kind of crazy. You know, they, they're born into a world that they don't understand. Things are confusing. Uh, they get scared. Um, even when they're in the safest position, they can be scared, you know? Um, they get confused by easy things. Kids are fun. They keep you on your toes. And how the church was birthed is a little bit like that you've got um, the birth of the church that we're looking at from Peter's sermon and talk about confusing times well uh, you just had Christ die on the cross you had his resurrection things were confusing things were very confusing Uh, things are scary Just like kids, new believers um, try to make sense of their world, and and it doesn't always work out. They need uh, leaders to guide them, to help grow them. Um, And so that's kind of what we're looking at today. And make no mistake that our world is confusing, even right now. Amen? Amen? You look around, you think you're living in topsy-turvy land. This person says this, but they actually mean this. Words have no meaning anymore. Uh, Things are constantly being redefined. It's real easy to to look around and feel unsettled. And and that's the same place that we kind of find ourselves in right now. Um, And we can relate that to the early church. And there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from uh, the early believers. So, that's what we're going to do today. Um, And and as we look at it, what we're going to see is that transformed people live transformed lives. And I'll kind of flesh that out a little bit, and uh, we'll talk about that. So, if you have your Bibles, please open to Acts 2. Uh, We're continuing there, looking at uh, the people's response. The response of these transformed people, and then we'll look at how these transformed people lived their transformed lives. So, Acts 2. And we'll begin in verse 37. The first thing we'll notice is that transformed people repent and are baptized. Transformed people repent and are baptized. So Acts 2, beginning in uh, verse 37. When the people heard this... Okay, what did they hear? They heard the gospel message. I just said that. We talked about that last week. They heard the gospel, okay? When they heard this... They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so they were cut to the heart. It's a a Greek idiom for uh, they had emotional distress, acute distress emotional distress. They were impacted by the gospel. They were beginning to be transformed. So they logically say, what are we supposed to do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time on this verse. And the reason why is because this verse is kind of a a well-known common proof text for people that are saying, see... You have to repent and be baptized in order to have your sins forgiven. And if you have an astute theological sniffer, as I like to call it, that means the gospel plus works. You have to do something in order to be forgiven. You have to be baptized to be forgiven. That's what some people say from this verse here. But we're going to take a closer look at it, okay? When we look at it, we see that repentance, baptism, and forgiveness of sins is certainly somehow connected, okay? Um, but we're going to dig a little bit, and I'm going to teach you the, the, uh, the principles of biblical hermeneutics, it's just a fancy word for biblical interpretation, that I learned in seminary, and I won't take months to do it, and I'm not going to charge you a dime, so it's going to be great. Um, so, uh, these are the principles. I learned them in my first seminary class, and they were true all the way through, and they've been true ever since, okay? So, step one, observation. Step two, interpretation. Step three, correlation. Step four, application. I'll say it again so you guys can write them down because nobody's writing. That's okay. (laughs) I'm still going to say it again. Observation, interpretation, correlation, application. Okay, observation. It's pretty obvious, but uh, we observe, we look at the text. You can think of it like this what does the text say? Okay, interpretation is what does the text mean, all right? Um, It's unnatural for us to only observe the text, and this is usually any text, because we often jump right to what does it mean? Some of us jump right to how can I apply it? But we take time and we need to observe it. And why do we do that? Because if we don't, we can miss something that is crucial. Okay? In fact, in seminary, uh, they had uh, one of my first assignments was I had to have 25 observations on the verse, Acts 1:8. And we just went over that, you know, some weeks ago. So Acts 1:8, uh, "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. In Samaria into the ends of the earth. 25 observations. Now, an observation is something like, uh, but is a contrastive conjunction, blah, 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 okay, stuff like that. Uh, 25 of them. There's not 25 words in that verse, but we had to have 25 observations of that single verse, right? Uh, So you're working hard, you know, doing all that, and then I go to hand it in to the professor, right? And He doesn't even look at it. He goes, oh, that's good. 25 more, 50 observations, single verse. What was the point? The point is, it's a skill that needs to be grown, and we don't often take the time to just observe what the text says, okay? So we're going to take a little bit of that time today. So we observe it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When we look at it, it clearly says that there is a link between repentance, baptism, and forgiveness of sins. But what that link is is somewhat unclear. And if we rush, we, come, we, we can come to the understanding that physical baptism, repentance happens, and then someone is baptized, dunking in the water, and that's what removes the sins. And in fact, uh, like I said, this is a common proof text. Some people will tell you, you have to be baptized to have your sins removed, or, or your sins aren't forgiven. And they'll point to this text. Well, if we apply this method of understanding of biblical study um, towards that, we look at what the next step is. Interpretation. Okay, so that's that meaning. The interpretation here would be, I have to be baptized, or I guess that would be application. Baptism removes sin. Okay, that would be kind of, what does this mean, right? Uh, But now we go to correlation. And correlation is where we start to look at, okay, Well, how is baptism, how is repentance, and how is the forgiveness of sin looked at elsewhere within the scriptures? Okay? So we correlate it with Peter, because Peter's the one talking here. So we look at all of Peter's writings and we see how does Peter uh, think about baptism, repentance, and forgiveness of sins? Uh, Luke is the one who wrote Acts, so we look at it in Luke. We look at, in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, because he wrote both, right? And we say, how, did, how is Luke using these terms, and, and is my thought of what he's saying here consistent with the rest of what Luke says, right? And then we look at the New Testament and the Old Testament. We put that all together because we know that the author of all of Scripture is the Holy Spirit, so it's not going to contradict itself. It's not going to be uh, out of order. There's going to be harmony. And so we go through that process and we ask ourselves, do I have a good understanding of what is being said here? Is Peter actually saying, you got to be baptized in water in order to have your, your sins forgiven? Um, no, he's not. Uh, when, we, when we look at correlation, I'm going I'm to call these out. You can write them down um, if you'd like. But, uh, and we won't turn there, but Acts 16.31, Acts 10.43... Acts 13, 38 through 39. Acts 26:18. Luke 24:47. John 3:16. John 3:36. Pretty much the whole chapter of Romans 4 almost. Romans 11:6. Galatians 3:8 and 9 and of course Ephesians 2. Just to name a few. What is my point? there are a lot of passages that deal with repentance and or baptism and or for the forgiveness of sins. There's a lot of scripture written on this. And if we take our time and we look through what the Bible says, we know clearly that it is by grace you have been saved through faith and it is a gift from God. Right? Right? So clearly, Peter's not saying, hey, you gotta be dunked to be clean. He's not saying that. So now we have to go back into our OODA loop, for those of you that know what an OODA loop is, or we'll just go back into our uh, observation correlation, uh, or observation interpretation correlation application loop. um, And we start to look again, okay? Now, I will tell you this, and you have to take my word on it because you don't have the Greek text in front of you. Well, some of you might. We have some scholars here, but. When you look at the Greek, the original language that it was written in, it's actually quite clear that Peter is not putting everything together as a one for one for one. Okay, what he's doing is he has a uh, he has second person plural, and he also has a second person singular. Okay, so for Texas, that's like he's got a y'all and he's got a you, and it's all in the same sentence. So it's it's kind of like what are you doing, man? This is terrible. Okay. Um, Now, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to be able to study the Bible this way. And I want to be very clear. The English translations that we have of the Bible are excellent. They are really good. Okay, Um, So, like when I do my daily devotion, I read through a, a single translation. I just read one translation. But when I'm studying, it's sometimes comical how many translations I look at. In fact, it's almost a running joke in our house how many translations... And Bibles we have. Just to sum up, I don't have enough fingers and toes. Okay? Um, Because that helps surface some things. Hey, this person translated it this way a little bit, this person translated it this way. Why is there a difference? Well, it's because there's something going on in the Greek that people are like, well, what's going on there? That's a little bit confusing, okay? Um, I'm going to add another translation to your repertoire, if you want it. Write down y'allversion.com. It's a website. You don't have to have another printed Bible. It's just y'allversion.com. Exactly what it sounds like. And uh, yes, a Texan, uh, a smart Texan, uh, put together a a translation of the Bible that includes the separation of second person plural and second person singular. Right? Right? because sometimes it's confusing when the Bible says you. Am I saying you, or am I saying you, right? So now we got you and y'all, okay? So I'm just going to read it for you uh, with this kind of uh, translation. This isn't exactly what shows up on the website, but essentially Peter replied, y'all repent, okay? Y'all repent, and you be baptized, each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for y'all's sins. Okay? So if you're looking at the structure of the verse, you got y'all, you, you, y'all. Okay? Um, And and this has confused really smart people, okay? Um, and, And some of the best, brightest minds out there have kind of worked and figured out, like, that if you put this together, it really looks like what Peter is saying is it's almost like a parenthetical statement in the middle. What he's saying is, y'all need to repent. Everyone needs to repent for the forgiveness of their sins. And as you repent, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. So there's a division in how it's linked together. Okay, so y'all need to repent. For the forgiveness of your sins. Well hold on now. Repentance, that's still like an extra work. We're saved by grace through faith. All we have to do is have faith in Jesus Christ. Why do I have to repent? Well, now we go back into our circle and we start to look at, okay, what is my interpretive lens? How do I correlate this across? And what you'll find is that uh, repentance and faith are like this in the scriptures. They go together. Uh, some, some people have said it's like two sides of the same coin, okay? They link together. How they do it, it you know, is it's a little bit for God, you know? For, for, for God to reveal to us. Um, and what, what we'll see is this, that particularly in Luke, definitely in the New Testament, but Luke in particular, uh, faith and repentance are super tight. And uh, Luke looks at repentance from both a Greek and a Hebrew understanding, okay? So the Greek word for repentance talks about a change of mind, if you look that up. Um, So we're talking about, hey, uh, here's the gospel message. Christ was just crucified. You're a bunch of Jews. And y'all need to change your mind on who Christ is because you crucified him thinking he was a liar because he said he was God. He said he was the son of God. You need to change your minds. It's part of what Luke is saying when he writes this. But the Hebrew understanding of repentance is a little bit different. That that comes from the Hebrew word shuv. Say shuv. Yeah, you guys just spoke Hebrew. Isn't that cool? Okay, so shuv uh, would be more like a, a turning away from and a turning toward to, okay? This is where we get our idea that repentance is a a turning away from your sin and a turning towards God or a turning towards Christ. And in Luke's mind, it goes together. It is both an intellectual decision, faith, if you will, and a turning from sin to God, okay? Uh, Really smart people have talked about this, so I'm going to read what some of them wrote, because I'm not that great. Okay, so God does not save us because of what we do, works. He doesn't save us because of works. We can't earn it. We're not good enough. We know this. He doesn't save us because of what we do for him, but because of what he has done for us in Christ. Repentance, by definition, is not an act separate from trusting Christ. It is part of the process of believing. It goes together. Repentance and faith are both necessary for salvation, but not as separate conditions. They are always, always integrally connected as confirmed by the constant interchangeability of terminology. Basically, like when you read the scriptures, sometimes they say repentance, sometimes they say faith, and, and when you read it, it, they're so closely linked, okay? To assent mentally, all right, to, to make a decision, to think, to change your mind, to the suggestion that Jesus died for me is unhappily only too easy for certain types of mind, but really to believe that God himself cut the knot of man's entanglement by a personal and unbelievably costly act is a much deeper affair. It's really easy to change your mind and say, yeah, Jesus died for me. I believe it. To actually believe it is kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. That's what he's saying there. Uh, H.A. Ironside is an old uh, preacher, uh, theologian, and a a professor, and he, he said this on it. He said, It needs ever to be insisted on that the faith that justifies is not a mere intellectual process, not simply crediting certain historical facts or doctrinal statements, but it is a faith that springs from a divinely wrought conviction of sin which produces a repentance That is sincere and genuine see how it all goes together so that's what's happening here okay now now that kind of makes sense now that makes sense okay now I'm gonna read that verse again and I think it's gonna make sense repent and be baptized each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins wait a minute I see another problem here what did Jesus Tell the disciples in Matthew 28. He said, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Peter, in the first sermon ever preached, he's already messing it up because he says all you have to do is be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Come on, Peter! Some people have wrongly said that Peter was wrong here. Let me say that again because there's kind of that double negative there. Some people have said that Peter was wrong here and those people are wrong. Why? Why do we know that? Well, we have to think of the context, right? We hear Joe say it all the time. Context, context, context. Peter is preaching the first sermon here to a primarily Jewish audience. They understood God as Father and they understood God as Spirit. What was the problem they had? Jesus. That's why they called for his crucifixion, because he says, I am the Son of God. Well, I guess he didn't say that literally, but I mean. So there you go. Peter is emphasizing that for you to be saved, you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ being the Greek word for Messiah got to be you got to recognize that jesus is the messiah he is who he said he was and that's what you're entering into and then verse 39 the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off we're already seeing hints that this message is going to be taken to the gentiles we already see peter's understanding of it beginning to grow And look at what he says next. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Right away, Peter is beginning to show that he recognizes God's sovereignty in the process of salvation. For all whom the Lord our God will call. If we're too quick to read through this and we don't think, we read uh, later on that he says, um, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And some people go, you can't save yourself. Only Jesus can save. The Bible is so wrong. He's not saying that. He's recognizing that there's God's sovereignty, that there is a divine call. But he's also recognizing that there is a human response. And it goes together. And by the way, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. You can put a little note in your Bible or whatever, just write Deuteronomy 32. The people hearing this would have instantly more than likely thought of Deuteronomy 32 because that is the same wording that's used there. And why is that important? Because the idea that the Jewish people might be part of the corrupt generation spoken of there was like devastating and we can look around today and we see corruptness don't we we certainly see brokenness or sometimes it's it's translated as a perverse generation and we certainly see that in our culture and the message is the same repent and be baptized place your faith in Christ goes together. And those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now if you thought five boys being born and being rambunctious was a little bit crazy, imagine 3,000 brand new babies. Because that's what just happened to the church. 3,000 babies that need that spiritual growth and that spiritual um, maturation. So, That's what happens, and we see uh, that this is the transformed people. And i got to tell you, uh, talking about baptism gets me excited. We'll probably have a baptism service soon, because someone I know has been talking about getting baptized. And i just got to say, if you have placed your faith in Christ, and you've never been baptized before, what are you waiting for? Come talk to us. The idea in in a New Testament uh, mind during the time of the apostles of an unbaptized uh, believer, it just, it it, it, like didn't go together, okay? So uh, come talk to us. I had the amazing privilege yesterday uh, to baptize uh, two people. We baptized them uh, in the lake uh, Lake Amistad, and they, they were only in town for a short time. They came into town for a retirement ceremony that, that happened on the base, and they stuck around, and uh, these kids were, uh, the, these kids are 12 and 9, and uh, they're a part of a family where the parents are raising them up in the Lord, and, and, and they believe in Christ. They, they've been praying. They've been showing signs that, uh, not signs and wonders like the apostles, uh, not that, but they've been showing signs of spiritual maturity, they've been showing, uh, giftings of the spirit, and, um, and, and so their parents ask them, you want to be baptized? And they're like, yeah, let's do it, I want to do it in Lake Amistad when I'm there, and have Mr. Summerfield baptize us. What an amazing privilege and opportunity, and, uh, Why do I get excited about baptism? Because if you understand what baptism is, it is so special. It is is the welcoming of new believers into the community of faith. That's part of what baptism is. Uh, It is the outward expression of an already inward change that has occurred. In the baptism yesterday, I said there's nothing magical about these waters. And there isn't. It's special because of what it symbolizes. And what does it symbolize? It symbolizes unity with Christ. That's why sometimes when there's a baptism, you'll hear somebody say, buried with Jesus and raised to new life. Unity with Christ. It symbolizes marriage, devotion to Christ. How does it symbolize marriage to Christ? If if you're a guy and you're out with your buddies, all right, and one of your buddies is single, and he starts talking to a pretty lady, he might look down at her left hand. Why? Yeah. See if somebody put a ring on it. Right? To see if she's married. To see if she's already devoted to somebody else. Now, if she went out without her ring, does that mean she's not married? No. She's still married. The ring is an outward expression of an already internal reality. Does that make sense? That's what baptism is. Baptism is saying, I am devoted to Christ. I am married to Christ. I belong to Christ. Uh, the, the early church used baptism as, as kind of an entrance into their community. I've already mentioned that. The way they would do that is uh, the person, they would call them a catechumen, uh, but they would be wrapped in, in dark, uh, kind of like a dark shawl or, or, or whatever, and, and they would go to the water and uh, they would remove the dark shawl, be baptized, and when they came up out of the water, they would be wrapped in like a white shawl and symbolizing the, uh, the removal of sin, the cleanliness, the purification of not the water, but of unity with Christ because of his sacrifice. Amen? So that gets me really, really excited because, man, if the gospel doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. I don't know how you can sing those songs in the beginning and not be excited. It does make me want to shout Christ's name from rooftops. It does. So, uh, so that's what's going on with the uh, transformed lives of these new believers. The transformed people. And what, what happened with their lives? What did their transformed lives look like? Well, that, that's where we pick up in uh, verse 42. It says, uh, They devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles all the believers were together and had everything in common they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need so it starts off they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and then there's two more in that same sentence right uh to the breaking of bread and to prayer um Again, in the Greek, it's pretty clear that those last two are actually a subset of what's going on, kind of describing the fellowship. Their fellowship consisted of breaking of bread and prayer. We're going to come come back to that. The first one, the apostles teaching. What is that? Okay, Uh, certainly the apostles would have been teaching from the Old Testament texts, right? Uh, So they're teaching from Old Testament scriptures. They're also uh, teaching from what Christ has taught them, And they're also teaching from what Christ is revealing to them as they're writing the New Testament. Does that make sense? So to summarize that, we could say these new believers were devoted to the revealed Word of God. We could say that. Believers were devoted to the revealed Word of God. What's, uh, What's the revealed Word of God nowadays? The Bible! They were devoted to the revealed Word of God, to the teaching of the apostles, devoted to it. Transformed lives are characterized by devotion. They're characterized by devotion. I want to talk for a minute about the teaching of the apostles. It is real easy to find a church that will tell you just about anything you want. It's real easy. Um, I'm just going to throw some phrases out there that I'm sure you've heard. Well, I don't want any of that religious stuff. I just want Jesus. I don't uh, want to be told that, um, that I'm, I'm still working through sin. I just want to feel God. Um, here's some other ones. This is from the Mystic Bible. The Mystic Bible. Do not buy it. Do not buy it. This is not a recommendation. Okay? This is a children's book written by someone who is a progressive Christian. Okay? If you hear progressive Christianity, this is the kind of stuff that progressive Christians are are teaching in their churches and to their children. I'm going to read a little bit of it. I want to see, again, if your theological sniffer is astute, okay? Uh, this right here is the, uh, the section talking about uh, the angel talking to Mary, all right, uh, uh, that she's going to have a baby boy. And this is what it says. See if you can pick up on it. Children's book. And you, my darling, you are going to give birth to a baby boy, and he will be so filled with God like all children, and even more, filled with God from the tips of his toes to the tip of his nose. For there is life growing in your womb, and your belly is going to swell like the golden moon. It sounds good. I don't know if it's iambic pentameter or whatever, Uh, uh, but it's got, it's rhymes, you know. Uh, This book even comes with really cool drawings, great to teach children from if you want to teach your children the wrong thing, but if you actually care about teaching your children the truth, you would have noticed uh, that he's going to be so filled with God, like all children are. This is that's heresy, y'all. That was put down in the early church a long time ago. That is how we get to the to the belief that Jesus is just like us. We're all the we're all gods. We're all just filled. With God a little bit more than other people. Does does that make sense? That's wrong. Let me see, let me read a little bit more and see if you pick up on something. This is talking about what Jesus is going to do for the world. He was going to hold the hands of the lonely and feed the hungry and give voice to the silent and weep with those who wept. He was going to show the world that everything is holy. he was going to show the world that everything is holy. That's this garbage. It is wrong. If everything was holy, we wouldn't have any problems in this world. Would we? No, of course not. The Bible is perfectly clear that not everything is holy. Holiness comes from being unified with Christ. And that's it. Not everything is holy. A uh, progressive, uh, progressive Christian church recently made headlines, um, or at least the kind of headlines that I read. Uh, and uh, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty big church. It, and they made headlines because they, they came right out and said, this is not the word of God. The Bible is not the Word of God. It's not uh, inerrant. It's not infallible. It's not authoritative. Um, Progressive Christians have also denied uh, the atonement of Christ. As you can see from their children's book, they don't see much of a difference between Jesus and ourselves. These are the kind of things that if we're not careful and we're not devoting ourselves to the revealed word of God, we can be swept up in. And and progressive Christianity is rampant in America and it's spreading across the world. Um, We need to be devoted to God's word now more than ever. Now more than ever. That church that said that, I just want to tell you how how scary this is. That church that said that just, just over five years ago was one of the... Most prominent churches in this country of Orthodox Christianity. In other words, what we preach here at DRBC, just five years ago, that church was preaching. And they started moving down this line. At first, it began to say, Well, I know the Bible says that God's design for marriage is one man and one woman but culture is beginning to say other things. Let's relook at that. Maybe we were wrong, and now, yes, we are going to say that that's not true. Um, and in fact, we'll, we'll have uh, people that do not hold to God's design as part of their leadership. And that was what started it. And it began this trend to now where they look at the Bible, that they say that they preach, and they tell their people, it's not the word of God. Why even preach it? Why, why say anything about Jesus? Devote yourselves to the teaching of God's Word. We also see that they were devoted in fellowship. And fellowship there is with the breaking of bread and with prayer in community. Yes, the breaking of bread is... Uh, used in terms of communion in the New Testament, but we see in the book of Acts throughout, and even especially in Luke's writing, that the breaking of bread is used in a broader uh, sense as well. So it probably, it, it most definitely meant communion, but it also meant just having a meal together. And, and in the first century uh, context, that was doing life. So I'm, I will ask you to, to think about, are you in biblical community? Are you actually in community with brothers and sisters in christ community that's defined by doing life together that's that's the phrase i'm going to say but they're a part of people's lives they have relationships they can see people's needs they're moved to generosity when they see people's needs and they're devoted to prayer It's real easy to trick ourselves to think we're in biblical community by saying things like, well, you know, I get together with my guys every Sunday, watch the game, Um, get together on Saturdays, Um, women go shopping, watch HGTV, whatever. It's real easy to to trick yourself to think you're in biblical community and only have surface-level relationships with anyone. Keeping everyone at an arm's distance. It's real easy. But look what biblical community actually produces. It says that they held everything in common. That, that, that probably means property and possessions, but it also means that they were kind of a, a, uni, a unified mind, of one spirit. They were devoted to the teachings and to each other. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Uh, Katrina and I know, uh, know someone that... that uh, wasn't allowed to work and they desperately needed a car and the group that they were a part of provide, provided a car for them and then paid for their insurance. And then their cell phones were paid for as well. Um, needs are met when the gospel is lived out. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's, that's a, a regular Jewish custom. So these people... These new believers in Christ continued to meet together every day. They broke bread, there it is again, in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. If if someone has met Jesus and put their faith in him because they've heard the gospel, what happens? They've just received the good news. there is glad and sincere hearts. And that's what we're seeing here. They were praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. That's important. It doesn't say only believers. It doesn't say only the believers. All the people, including people that did not believe in Christ. Because of their their genuine faith and sincerity of heart and and love for others, which we're going to sing about in just a second, their faith was contagious. People saw that something was different. And Jesus said uh, to his disciples, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. That is what is meant to characterize transformed lives. And then it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's the lives of the early church. That is a transformed life being lived out when we read this, we should think to ourselves, is my life characterized like that? Is my life characterized by devotion to God, devotion to his teaching, devotion to his word? Is my life characterized by community, community that is so real that I'm overwhelmed with love for the people that I have a relationship with? I'm overwhelmed uh, to give where, where I see needs that need to be met, Am I growing in spiritual maturity? Am I growing to be more Christ-like? I'm going to use uh, an example here, and please don't laugh. Well, it's okay if you laugh. Uh, Something I learned about in, in school has kind of always stuck with me, and I never really knew why, but as I was reading this, now I'm like, oh... Uh, in California. And don't say nothing good comes from California. I know we're Texans here, but someone, someone once said that nothing good comes from Nazareth, and uh, they were wrong. Okay, so um, in California, along the coastline, you have the Redwood Forest, all right? I've never seen it. I really want to someday, but I've heard some of the trees are up over 200, 300 feet tall. Some of them are like 40 feet big around right? Like we're talking giant trees, okay? And um, I, have all, I, I learned and I find it interesting that the way they're able to do that is their root system is all woven together and interconnected. And that provides nourishment, provides stability and strength for these trees to grow. I submit to you that is a really good picture for what Christian community should look like. We are meant to be interwoven and put together and that's what helps provide strength and nourishment as we grow towards spiritual maturity. Amen? Amen. This week, I would ask that you consider your life. Consider if you are devoted to God's Word and to community as we see in the Bible. Yes, I'm going to ask you to join a group. I'm the groups guy. I'm going to ask you to be involved with faith and fitness. I'm going to ask you to be involved in groups. But you don't have to be involved in a group to be in biblical community. That's just one way to do it. So think about that this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the amazing opportunity to open your word and to read it. We thank you for the opportunity to even gather in your name where we know so many people are unable to. We thank you for the sacrifice your Son, Jesus Christ, made on our behalf. I ask that uh, you would use your Holy Spirit to move among these people, to draw them into a, a deeper relationship with you and a deeper relationship with each other, that they would be able to move on into maturity with one another. I ask that you, your Holy Spirit would convict people if they've never been baptized to make that outward expression of devotion to you. Help us be a people that is so loving of one another, meeting the needs of people around us, that we find favor with all people, that we see that when the gospel is lived out, it is irresistible to those whom you are calling. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.